podcast is powered by Pella Windows and Doors. Make sure you check out their showrooms in Lincoln and Omaha. It's a great place to get your window or door needs journey started. The showrooms are really, really cool, and they're really helpful. So check them out or check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Shoot360 Lincoln, the world's most advanced basketball training facility with basketball season kind of wrapping up for a lot of the kids out there. You have your high school basketball seasons wrapping up, youth seasons wrapping up. You're about to have more time to work on your game with summer basketball on the horizon, spring basketball on the horizon, all those kinds of things. And I know for me, I always made my biggest leaps of improvement in the spring and in the summertime. And a membership at Shoot360 Lincoln is the place to do that. A membership at Shoot360 Lincoln gets you daily access to our basketball training facility where you can set uh, an appointment on our app where it's almost like booking a tea time where you can reserve 30 minutes of, of shooting in one of our shooting bays where you can have an automatic rebounding machine or our NBA level technology tracking every single shot where you're going to be able to get up you know, thir- 300 to 400 shots. Uh, and then you can also have 30 minutes of, of ball handling and passing as well in our skills courts with these giant touch screens where you're passing uh, a ball and hitting a target off the screen, going doing ball handling workouts. It's just it's incredible, man. Schedule your free workout by going to shoot360.com backslash Lincoln. You fill out the I'm interested form for that official recruiting visit. It's just a free one hour workout or give us a call at 531-500-0588. That's 531-500-0588. All right, I am taping this. It is Tuesday, February 27th. I'm on the road all week. I was on the road all weekend. I'm currently in Cincinnati at my hotel. I got uh, DePaul and Xavier tomorrow night, and uh, I, I had a busy weekend as well. I had two games over the weekend, Texas at Kansas on Westwood One inside Allen Fieldhouse with my guy Kevin Kugler, and then I called Xavier at Marquette on Sunday. Uh, so it's a busy weekend for me. It's a busy week for me, but I got a handful of Nebraska basketball thoughts for you guys because the Huskers, they've won four in a row, and they are definitely trending in the right direction. So let's start there. So I tweeted this on Sunday evening. I tweeted, this time of year, taking care of business and winning the games you are supposed to win isn't as easy as it sounds. Nebraska has dominated four straight games, and they got that road win monkey off their back too. Pretty good last 15 days for Husker Hoops. So, sure, on paper, you look at it. Nebraska was supposed to beat Michigan at home and Penn State at home and and go beat a team they already beat in Indiana on the road and, and beat Minnesota at home. Sure, all that stuff, it, it, that's what it was supposed to, to be. You know, if you look at Ken Palm and who was favored and all those kinds of things. But it's a lot easier said than done. And Nebraska went out and just smacked all four teams. And when you are Nebraska basketball, obviously as a – a program historically, not a ton of success. And you are on the bubble, and the pressure is high, and the anxiety is high, and you have a lot of guys on that roster that have never really tasted the NCAA tournament. Taking care of business and winning these games is harder than it looks. Just look all across college basketball. You see these upsets. You see these these teams that are on the bubble, drop games. They're, they're, they're not supposed to, supposed to in air quotes. So on a simple level, I got to acknowledge that first. And then when you kind of 
when you zoom out even further for the situation, I also think when you have high hopes for March as a basketball team, it's also important to be improving and building momentum into March. And Nebraska is definitely doing that. So it's not only, yes, they're winning and taking care of business, but it feels like they're getting better and better and better. And there's momentum around the team and the program right now. I mean, I think Nebraska is playing their best basketball of the season the last month or so. In all reality, if you, if you look at it, outside of their Northwestern game, Nebraska's played pretty damn good for seven straight games. So they upset Wisconsin at home and then lost in overtime at Illinois, but played really good in that game. Had the stinker at Northwestern, but then beat Michigan. That was maybe the best 20 minutes of basketball Nebraska's played all year in the first half. They beat Penn State. They got that first road win of uh, of the conference slate at Indiana. They played really well. And even had a moment where it felt like, oh, God, Nebraska's melting. Indiana's coming back. They've cut it to three. The Hoosiers are going to win. Nope, Nebraska got tough. They bowed up, and they pulled it out. And then they hammered Minnesota on Sunday. So that's their last seven games. And again, outside of Northwestern, Nebraska is seemingly getting better and better and more and more confident. And, you know, beyond just my thoughts and, and my eye test or, or your eye test, Bart Torvik, a college basketball analytics site, has Nebraska as the 10th best team in the country over the last four weeks. 10th best team in the country over the last four weeks. Pretty amazing. Which, which leads me to this. And, you know, I sat down to, to kind of write out this take, and I was thinking about this, and it, it might be too soon to have this segment on the pod since it's, it's only late February and there's still a, a lot of basketball left. But, man... Two years ago, during and at the end of year three for Fred Hoiberg, that was the Alonzo Verge year, the Bryce McGowan's year. Like, during and at the end of year three for Hoiberg, I'm not going to lie, I thought it was likely over for Hoiberg at Nebraska. I didn't necessarily think Hoiberg would get fired right then and there, so I, 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 I didn't mean over in the immediate sense of the word. I meant it and it just kind of felt like it was an, an inevitability that it was gonna it was gonna end at some point. Like it that's what it felt like to me. I thought maybe one more year and it was done. And and Hoiberg and Nebraska would part ways. And that's not because I didn't like Fred Hoiberg, because I don't I I didn't think Fred Hoiberg was a good coach. I just thought that the program had had slid in a bad direction. And I just kind of had a hard time seeing how Hoiberg could could save it. I didn't I I had a hard time seeing a path to him being able to to flip literally everything and get a foundation laid for success to be built in a really short period of time. Because Fred Hoiberg literally needed to change basically everything, recruiting, defense, personnel, competitiveness. Like it all needed a complete overhaul, not a few tweaks, like a complete go to the dry erase board, like picture in Fred Hoiberg's office, like there was something called the plan and it had all this stuff written out. Like through the first three years, whatever was written on that board, Hoiberg needed to get an eraser and erase it all. Like I'm talking all of it. And I just kind of thought to myself, like, I don't know how you're, you're going to turn things around quick enough. 
Well, here we are, nearly two seasons later, and it is remarkable the turnaround that Fred Hoiberg has led. I'll be honest, and I think I've admitted this on the pod, I couldn't stand watching Nebraska, that Nebraska team play two years ago. I just couldn't stand. It was a it hard watch. They finished 10-22. and 22. At one point, they were 1-16 in Big Ten play, and they weren't even really competitive for most of the year. Like, that team didn't even sniff the vicinity of the toughness and fight and competitiveness needed to win at this level. Didn't even sniff it. And so to go from that to what we've watched now for this last year and a half, it's just incredible how much it's changed. And, you know, chew on this, and I'm sure you've seen this on the BTN broadcast, but it it bears repeating. So Fred Hoiberg's record at Nebraska through the first full three seasons and then all the way until February 1st of year four, which was February 1st of last season. Nebraska's record was 34 and 80 during that time. 34 and 80. Since February 1st of last year, Nebraska's record is 26 and 11. That's the second best record in the Big Ten during that stretch behind only Purdue. And a 37-game sample size is not a small sample size. Anybody can get hot and have a nice, you know, eight-game stretch, 10-game stretch, six-game stretch. This is a 37-game sample size. They were 34-80, and 80, boom, 26 and 11 for the next 37 games. This is just one of the more incredible turnarounds I've seen in real time that didn't involve a full-fledged coaching change. Because it's one thing when there there is a coaching change and things get flipped. Like when Bo Pelini took over for Bill Callahan and things flipped. That that's a new regime, a, a new era. This isn't that. This is the same coach after three pretty bad years. And seemingly no momentum, completely changing everything. New assistant coaches, new recruiting approach, new defensive philosophy, a complete overhaul. And it has worked. In a weird way, it's almost like Nebraska did make a coaching change after Hoiberg's third year. Because Hoiberg changed everything with his program. And it has been incredible. Incredible to watch in real time. And I just hope people can appreciate what they're watching because this is this is pretty rare and it's pretty special. I mean, just really think, imagine someone telling you last year on February 1st, imagine someone telling you, walks up to you last year, February 1st, Nebraska's sitting there, you know, they're 10 and 13. Imagine someone walking up to you and saying, hey, so over the next 37 games, Nebraska is going to go 26 and 11 and have the second best record in the Big Ten during that span behind only Purdue. You you would have been like, yeah, really? Come on. You, you'd have been really, really shocked to hear that. You thought that whoever that person was was crazy. Well, 
That is what has happened. Now, this season is not over, and Nebraska still, you know, there's still a lot of basketball yet to be played. Like, they still got a tough roadie against a surging Ohio State team. They got a tough Rutgers team coming to Lincoln that's really good defensively and beat you at their place. They got a Michigan team on the road in Ann Arbor at the end of the year that is a different team with their point guard, Doug McDaniel, on the floor. And then there's the Big Ten tournament, and then hopefully for Husker fans, some more after that. So there's still a lot of basketball to be played, so you don't want to pop the champagne and start handing out flowers too soon. But for me, I just I, I want to say it real time, in the moment, this has been a pretty remarkable turnaround from Fred Hoiberg and a really, really impressive 30-game, 37-game stretch for Nebraska. Got to keep it rolling and see if you can, you can make this season now one for the ages but this has been, from February 1st of last year until now, this has just been amazing to watch, especially when you really try to think back to the first couple of years under under Fred Hoiberg and where things stood. Just, just amazing. And I just, you know, sometimes we like we wait too long. Like, well, let's let it, let's, we wait too long to kind of admit that something's impressive. And like, I just got to say, this has been quite the, quite the turnaround. Sticking with Husker hoops. So, I mean, I don't even know why I'm going to talk about this, but like file this under beggars, can't be choosers, and and hypothetical, what is really, we're going to talk about this. But I was just, I was thinking about this. So, Nebraska is, is in that, you know, like 9, 10, 11 seed range for a lot of bracketologists and projections you see right now. And so let me lay this beggars can't be choosers elaborate silly hypothetical out. Just let's have some fun together here. I've always felt I've always felt this way about NCAA tournament seeding. I'd rather be a 10 or 11 seed than an 8 or a 9 seed. Now, that thought is mostly through the lens of advancing past the first weekend into the sweet 16. But I, I think the reality is the caliber of competition for your first round is is pretty similar if if you're facing an eight seed or a six or a seven seed. Like, of course, there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, I think it's close. But to me, the chances of beating a one seed in the second round versus a two seed in the second round, dramatically different, in my opinion. And even though Nebraska is just simply searching for that first ever NCAA tournament win, I still kind of view it in this lens. Oh, I'd rather I, without knowing, without knowing anything, and just getting to be able to pick a seed for Nebraska, and my choices are: okay, you can be an eight, a nine, a ten, or eleven. I think I'd choose a ten seed. For all the reasons I just laid out on the whole eight nine seed versus ten seed thing, and then the eleven seed, like I just I'd want to avoid Dayton and the first four if possible. So I'd, I'd choose a ten seed if I if I got to if I got to have a choice, and then to take it a step further to this crazy stupid hypothetical. The other reason I think I'd choose a ten seed is. There's a world where a 10 seed for Nebraska gets them in Omaha in the first round. For as ridiculous as it sounds and ridiculously unfair to do this, the NCAA selection committee chair, Charles McClellan, told The Athletic last week that the committee would have no problem putting Nebraska in Omaha. 
And for that to happen, you're likely going to have to probably be a 10 seed. Because I would think you're looking at, you know, your two seeds for Omaha would be you know, Kansas, Marquette maybe, like those teams. If there is any chance at Nebraska getting to be in Omaha for the first weekend, you really want that if you're Nebraska. There would be 15, 16, 17,000 Nebraska fans inside the CHI Health Center if they played first round in Omaha. And with how much better this team is in front of their home fans and all that stuff, I mean, it just goes without saying, but with, with travel logistics and charter planes and all that goes into the first round of the tournament, and if, if the committee would, would be open to sending Nebraska to Omaha, uh, wow. Now, again, excluding Nebraska for a second and how excited a lot of Husker fans would be, I do think it's wildly unfair to do this. Like, I can't believe, I couldn't believe the committee chair would do I mean, that's just crazy. The only seeds that should be getting geographical favors are the top three or four seeds, in my opinion. Really, the top one or two, the, the one and the two seeds. Like, those are the ones that have earned the right to, to play in close proximity to their home fans and their, and, and their home city. So I am kind of surprised that the committee has said that they wouldn't have a problem putting Nebraska in Omaha or BYU in Salt Lake City or Gonzaga in Spokane. That all seems really unfair unless those teams are all one, two, or three seeds, which all those teams aren't. So we'll see. Certainly there are a ton of different factors with this. But once I read that, because I'd, I'd seen different projections throughout the year on like, oh, this one, Nebraska's a 10 in Omaha. And I'd always be like, no way the committee's going to send them to Omaha. Well, I stand corrected. Because I once I read from the chairman of the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee in the athletic, the whole beggars can't be choosers part of my brain kicked in. And I've just been kind of thinking, man... If you're Nebraska, 10 seed looks pretty nice because there's a at least it gives you a chance, a chance at landing in Omaha. Be crazy, wouldn't it be? Now I can hear all of you screaming at your phones right now or into your headphones right now, whatever. Like Nick, calm down. Nebraska needs to get in the tournament first and then go from there. And you're right. You're totally right. I just thought that that scenario was interesting and one to I wanted to throw it out there. After I saw that that from the chair the in the athletic the the chairman of the NCAA chairman selection committee say, "Hey, yeah, we'd have no problem putting Nebraska in Omaha." I was like, "Whoa, okay. Well, if that's the case, that is <laughs> if you're Nebraska like you let's you want to explore that scenario." All right, one more stupid thought on Nebraska in the NCAA tournament. This, this pod should just be called Stupid Nebraska NCAA Tournament Thoughts. But my buddy Willie brought this up to me over a month ago, and it's, it's a great point. Uh, so we are all used to Keisei Tominaga. Like, we're, we've seen him play for years. We've, we, we know all about his game. We know about his antics. Like, we, we know about Tominaga, right? But you know what? The rest of the national college basketball world doesn't really know about this dude. And a part of the fun of the NCAA tournament is that first weekend and you all of a sudden get introduced to some super crazy fun player you aren't familiar with and you're like, yo, who is this guy? 
my buddy Willie brought this up to me with regards to Kasey Tominaga, and it's true. Like, imagine the national casual college basketball world or college basketball fan that just like they don't really follow college basketball, but they they love the NCAA tournament. That imagine that 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 casual college basketball world swooping in to watch the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament and getting their first look at Kasey Tominaga. I mean, even imagine someone like Kenny Smith or Charles Barkley in the studio getting their first laying eyes on him. They would all be like, what? What? Look at this guy. He's this 6'1", 6'2", Japanese player that is hitting 28-foot threes and going crazy with antics after every three makes. It's just like he's the kind of player that could become a star of the first weekend if he's hot, you know, on one shining moment and all that stuff. And it kind of took my buddy Willie bringing that element up to me for me to really think about it because I'm immersed in the college basketball world. So I, I know about almost all of the, the great, fun, unique players out there. And all of us are, are being immersed in Nebraska basketball, like obviously know about and are used to Kase Tominaga. But anyone outside of the Big Ten world and the Nebraska basketball world likely doesn't know about Tominaga. And man, he would be the type of player. He would be the type of player that the casual March Madness fans would go crazy over. Because can't you just see the text from people that first opening that Thursday or Friday opening weekend, like like a text, hey man, you you watching the seven ten Nebraska game? You see this Tomanaga dude? He's got twelve points in the first five minutes, and he's hit four twenty eight foot threes. Like I I can totally see it. Just a just a fun thought inspired by my buddy Willie. Shifting gears, staying with hoops, though. Uh, so, all the way back on my pod, exactly about almost exactly a month ago, January twenty fifth, I talked about court storming after the Caitlin Clark incident, where I think it was an Ohio State student kind of barreled into her as they were rushing the floor and I talked about court storming and my experience with it and how regardless of how much you like it and how fun it is it is really really dangerous for those that didn't hear that pod I I have experience in this I am a I guess you could call it a court storming survivor for lack of a better term because back in 2005 my sophomore year at KU we were undefeated we were ranked number one in the country we played at Villanova and Nova upset us beat us pretty good and I was on the floor at the end of the game so the buzzer sounds and boom, in an instant, I was near half court, just kind of walking towards the sideline, and instantly I was surrounded by Villanova students as they rushed the floor. I can still close my eyes and picture them running at me. I can still remember the rush of the smell of alcohol, and I'm not going to lie, it was scary. A bunch of drunk students surrounded me, and I, I, you know, I started stiff-arming them, half-shoving them to keep them away from me. And luckily, Danny Manning, who was an assistant at the time at Kansas, grabbed me and pulled me out of the craziness. But that experience always stuck with me. And my take a month ago was, listen, I get it. Storming the courts a part of the pageantry and fun of college basketball. But if you don't think it's wildly dangerous, you are absolutely crazy. It's not a matter of if, but when something bad, really bad happens. Well, here we are just a few weeks later, and we have another incident involving storming the court this time wake forest they beat duke a wake forest student ran over duke's 
best player, Kyle Filipowski. He appeared to kind of injure his ankle. I don't know about the severity of it, but because of that, because it's Duke, because it's Filipowski, and because it's another incident, all of a sudden the conversation has ramped back up. And this conversation is is just it's a it's a tough one because if you it's hard because if you take the stance of banning court storming, you are cast as a fun hater and lame and oh my god, get real. But there also is a reality to the situation that is kind of undeniable is that it is really dangerous. So it, it kind of seems like the conversation ends up in kind of a standstill at times. In the last few days, we've had a bunch of people weighing in on it. Jay Billis said that you could end it by arresting the fans on the floor. That certainly feels extreme. Um, some have suggested that if students rush the floor, you automatically forfeit the game. That seems ridiculous. You know, so I think whatever everybody's trying to come with some like, you know, uh, perfect silver bullet, one size fits all, easy, like one sentence to this thing like it sounds good it's like here it just arrest them boom problem solved it's like eh. here how about this forfeit the game boom problem solved it's like yeah so it's hard like I think the answer is a little bit more complex than we want to make it but at the same time the simple answer is to just ban it and not allow it I would lean towards that beefing up security not letting fans onto the court at all But it just seems like that's not what people really want. Doesn't it kind of feel like that? It seems like people would rather explore, like if the options are like, hey, you can either just ban it or we can try to come up with something that it still, you still have it, but there's some guardrails or something behind Like I feel like everyone wants to explore like, ah, no, we don't want to ban it. So if there isn't going to be a full-fledged ban on it, then I, I don't, I would maybe kind of lay it out like this. Well, first of all, if you think about it, the only court storm scenario that could or should be a dangerous one is the buzzer beater court storm. That's when everything literally happens in seconds, right? Like shot goes in, buzzer sounds, boom, ball game over, students are sprinting onto the court, and all the players and coaches are still on the court, and it's total mayhem. And all that happens in like a span of, you know, 15 seconds, 10 seconds. But in a lot of other scenarios, there's a buildup to it. Think of the Purdue win. Think of the 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 Creighton win over UConn. Think of, like there's a buildup to it. In a lot of these other scenarios, there needs to be an understanding universally amongst all players and coaches involved that if the clock is ticking down and a court storm is clearly about to happen, all opposing team players need to get to the sideline by their bench ASAP and then get completely off the floor. I think that combined with the administrators and security personnel uh, at the arena on the floor needing to kind of slow down the flood of students getting onto the court and filtering them away from the benches. I think all that is like the starting point for how I would like fix this, for lack of a better term. Because if you if you watch how Creighton handled it when they upset number one UConn last week, and the fans rushed the court, it was literally handled perfectly. Go back and watch it. They had, there, there was like, the, the students were coming, they were, they were all coming from one condensed area, so they had some security personnel forcing the students 
in a slower filtered fashion onto the court on the far sideline away from the benches. And while that was happening, more security personnel made their way onto the floor with a rope and kind of quickly roped off the handshakes between coaches on the sideline with the benches from everything else that was happening on the floor. And everything went pretty much fine. But there has to be a plan. And there has to be personnel and security in place to execute that plan. And when you contrast that with the Wake Forest Duke ending where students were onto the court with like still time on the clock with like 0.2 or 0.3 seconds still on the clock, it was just, it was chaos. Totally different. Totally different. So again, like I said a few weeks ago, as a court storming survivor from 2005, I told you guys that it's not a matter of if, but when someone gets seriously hurt or there is a serious incident. And I also said, if you if you think these court stormings aren't really dangerous, you're crazy. I get it. They may be fun and cool to watch and all that stuff, but they're really dangerous. It's like a human running of the bulls. Like, the, it's it's really dangerous. But it, it just, it seems like nobody really wants to ban them. We all kind of acknowledge that they're dangerous, but it kind of seems like most everyone still wants them to be to be a part of, of college basketball. So if that's the case, then we, we do need to get some universal protocols and, and different things in place. Because if we're going to continue this, if we're just going to continue in this cycle of court storm happens, we all debate banning court storms, we do nothing, and then things calm down, and then another court storm happens, we all debate banning court storms, we do nothing, and then everything calms down. Like, that is going to get really old. I mean, hell, it's already getting a little bit old. So, again, I don't know what the blanket solution is if we aren't going to full-scale, legit ban court storms other than what I just laid out. It's incumbent on each university and arena to come up with a plan to do it as safe as possible. It's possible, too. And, and like I said a little bit ago, the reality is it should be the buzzer beater court storm that is the really hard to deal with dangerous one. The ones where the game is at hand and the clock is ticking down and the storm of students is coming, that's when players and coaches need to, to act accordingly, to get ready to get off the floor. And then the security personnel, they need to get into position at the arena to, to act accordingly as well when that time comes. I mean, even I remember a couple of years ago when Providence clinched the Big East regular season title and you knew they were going to rush the floor. Uh, Greg McDermott and Ed Cooley, like, they came to an agreement, like, right as the game was getting over. Like, Creighton's players were just going to get off the floor as the buzzer sounded so nothing crazy happened. Like, I mean, th- there are ways to, to do this. And I- I'll say this to, to kind of wrap up. The only thing I do like about this ongoing debate is that it brings awareness and, and it's like, it is creating some awareness for everyone I just talked about that's involved, whether, whether it's, you know, arena security personnel, like the all arena security people should be, they should be meeting to discuss a plan if they haven't already done so on how are they going to handle a court storm. And then also players and coaches should be aware of what happened to Caitlin Clark and what happened to Kyle Filipowski. 
And for as much as it sucks because you just lost and you 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 don't you know you're you're obviously not happy and else you do need to try to hustle off the floor. So the discussion it's creating, I hope gets translated into awareness and action for everybody involved in college basketball. A Heard at Sports Network production.